Hello, welcome to a View from the Side podcast with me, your host, Rosie Clement Henry. On this podcast, we're going to look at art in Wales. I'll be interviewing established artists on their careers to recent graduates, as well as art historians and curators on the artists and issues that matter most to them. In this difficult time, I want this podcast to inspire and uplift those who are passionate about the arts, and specifically to give a platform to our experiences in Wales. I'm excited to welcome to the podcast the photographer, painter and filmmaker John Poutney. John explores memory, nostalgia, social history and community in his work, often working directly with people to bring to life their stories and to make them accessible to all. At the beginning of 2020, John's photography was exhibited at Chapter Arts in Cardiff, titled Waiting for the Light. Before this, he had a programme commissioned and broadcasted by the BBC called Forgotten Images of Valley Life. And most recently, John has been working with the Commonwealth Theatre on a public artwork. He is now developing a project called The Allure of Ruins and the Dreaming Valleys. Hi, John. How are you today? Hello. I'm fine, thank you. Nice to be here. Great. Thanks for coming on. I love your work. I'd love to start by asking, when did photography first have an impact on you? Or do you remember the moment you were first drawn to a camera? A very long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, it feels <laughs> like now. Probably the first kind of things that I did with cameras involved taking pictures of horror films off the TV. So we're talking about 1990. The ITV company at the time central which doesn't exist anymore was repeating horror films in the middle of the night on a friday night and at that point we didn't have a video recorder so we had no way of re-watching the films this is all ancient technology to people of your generation where everything is online instantaneous yeah. when i was growing up you had to wait for things to come on telly which is quite a weird concept now and it was really exciting when you'd get the radio times and you'd see film was coming on and you'd be like oh wow all i remember is taking pictures of the this particular film with a very very low quality instamatic camera and I think out of all of the pictures uh, one of them came out and this was a picture of Christopher Lee's Count Dracula and I was absolutely amazed that I managed to get a picture of, off the television screen yeah and that one's so iconic that Dracula. yeah 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 it, and the photo was amazing it was really clear it would probably look rubbish now and then I was kind of more interested in in films and special effects and kind of makeup and stuff at that point more than just just simply photography. So I would do a lot of stuff with double exposure, trick photography, and like drawing onto negatives and trying to get prints from negatives. And that kind of developed into more of a serious thing in the mid 90s when my nan gave me my grandfather's Voiklander camera, which was a very old, still is very old, I've still got it, but an old camera from about 1936, 1937, which I started to use around the farm that I grew up on, just doing pictures of trees and landscapes and stuff. Yeah. And then I remember a, a programme was on BBC Two in 1995, which was how to get into photography, basically, and how to do your own prints and stuff. I had my own SLR then for my 17th birthday, which my nan bought for me in 1995 in the London Camera Exchange in Leamington Spa, which is where I went to college. And that's how it all started, really. It's 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 a cross-pollination, like all things that I do, really, still. It's like a bit of a cross-pollination of ideas. And I went, started with one thing, which is like taking pictures off the TV. So to come into what you might call documentary photography, I came into it probably from totally the wrong direction. Yeah, that was really unexpected to say horror films I've noticed on your Instagram as well you like to put up pictures from films that are broadcasted on talking pictures absolutely love talking pictures it's a bit of a lifesaver because I mean working from home that hell my partner has been doing and obviously I'm based at home in terms of what you have on in the day on TV to actually watch is just rubbish. Um, so for me, the last two or three years, all I've had on in the day has been talking pictures and it's been a really nice, kind of revived my interest in film really. And that's what I, like I said, I started off being much more interested in film and cinema than maybe even painting or photography and kind of getting into painting and photography was more of a means to an end to kind of explore cinema. And I was always much more interested in making my work cinematic and kind of interested in that way than just doing straightforward photography mm. um, if that makes sense definitely your photos are of your local landscape they're not 
I wouldn't just say they're documentary, but you're recording that place. And I think it does feel more, more cinematic, like it's more your interpretation of it. Yeah, I've never been really interested in documentary photography as a label. And I've never really done, I think despite how my work appears, I think people would probably be surprised to think that I've never really done straightforward documentary photography. I've never done street photography, which I think is a phrase that I really hate because that means nothing. People are obsessed with street photography and all these rules and this vibe around street photography. And I just find it really aggressive and quite kind of intrusive. What I've always tried to do is something that's a bit more about storytelling and narrative. The first big project that I did that was kind of known on the internet was a project I did called Cardiff Before Cardiff, which involved me finding another photographer's work in a studio that I was renovating. This is 10 years ago now. A guy called Keith S. Robertson. And I reacted to his work by kind of reshooting some of the places that I recognised, all in and around Splot and the docks in Cardiff. Mm. And then I re- kind of opened it up to kind of do my own kind of portraiture and kind of reflected Cardiff in 2010, 2011, 2012 when I was doing the project. And I think people at the time didn't really grasp that it was, they thought the project was sentimental, but it it was a project about sentimentality and nostalgia and that kind of, which now actually is much more of a current thing with stuff like Brexit, where people actually think they're voting for nostalgia. Mm. And it's like people think they're voting to leave the EU, to go back to how we used to be, in inverted commas, when how we used to be is just like a bit of a hazy memory of 30, 40 years ago, when everyone, you know, remembers their teenage childhood years. Everyone always thinks that's better than teenagers have it now, because that's probably the happiest time of your life. And that's what that photography was all about. It was that recreating a kind of narrative that I hadn't necessarily even lived through, but I wanted to kind of create work that looked like that. So that was my idea at that point. And that's something that I've carried on with right until doing these two concurrent projects now that you mentioned with the Allure of Ruins and the the Dreaming Valleys. How did the Cardiff Before Cardiff inform that project? And if you could explain what you're doing. I don't know if it informed it. I mean, it informed it in the way that I learned a lot doing Cardiff before Cardiff. I mean, it's nine years since I did the exhibition. I think really that was just a kind of terrifying crash course (laughs) in how to do any kind of social history project. You had a big rain on it, didn't you? Yeah, I was learning literally from a standing start and the kind of interest in it right from the beginning was just crazy. Massive feedback online, loads of interest from like the Echo in Cardiff and the Western Mail and then that led on eventually to doing a BBC documentary about a different subject but it was all kind of interrelated I think with the new work now I mean The Allure of Ruins is a project that's kind of been several different solo projects that have all coalesced into one when I looked at the themes that were running through several of the projects that I'd done since about 2015 I thought there's probably a wider body of work here and there was two projects in particular that I did one was called God Forgive Me which was about the Iron Master of Merthyr Tidfil RT and God forgive me is actually what's written on his tomb, mm. which is quite a weird thing to have on written on your tomb. Yeah, you just, <laughs> yeah what's he done wrong? What's he yeah. asking forgiveness for? It's quite an ambiguous phrase. So I did a lot of work about the ironworks in Kavartha in Merthyr, which are ruins now. That's where the title came from. I love the Kavartha Castle there as well. They've got a great art gallery museum there now. Yes, it's a lovely place. I mean, that is that was his house. Right. Yeah. So that's where Arthur lived. There's examples of his photography in there it's an amazing spot Re- really incredible spot actually but the house Kavartha Castle overlooked the Kavartha ironworks which when you stand now you can't see any of it because it's all hidden behind trees but if you imagine at the time the works would have worked 24 hours a day seven days a week the glow in the sky was visible from Cardiff from the ironwork actually I think it's like 27 miles you could have seen the actual glow in the sky at night from the ironworks okay. it was the world's biggest ironworks so it's an incredible thing so I did a lot of work about that and then I did a a project which was based in the Cardiff Foreshore which is called Beachcombing and Cardiff Foreshore is a post-industrial area in Splot in Cardiff which is a post-industrial beach covered in bricks, slag, landfill, (laughs) 
it's a lot more picturesque and interesting than it sounds. <laughs> so I did a lot of work there and I did a lot of wandering there and it's just a really fascinating space. But when you research it, it was remains of a steelworks in Cardiff, which was Eastmore Steelworks, which was bizarrely was photographed by Keith when he was doing his work that became part of Cardiff before Cardiff. But it was also a site which was related to Merthyr, where I'd been doing work in Cavartha and Dowlice because the original iron and steelworks in Dowlice moved to Cardiff so it was nearer to the docks and was known as the Dowlice Works Cardiff which obviously is a bizarre name yeah. to name it after another place and then it became Eastmore Steelworks later on. So I started to see these weird kind of almost like ley lines joining the work together so I elaborated on that and for, for about the past three years now I've been looking at a lot more varied and kind of disparate different kind of post-industrial spaces mm. across South Wales and then I'm hoping if lockdown ever finishes I'm hoping to take that up to North Wales Mid Wales as well with places like Blind Eye Fastiniog and there's places in West Wales where there's tin mines and stuff it's a really big body of work now there's like 350 pictures in the edit at the moment which I've done and I'm hoping that that's going to be exhibited somehow next year which is obviously very soon now yeah. <laughs> so I'm starting to feel a bit like oh that, that thing that I thought was in 2021 like that's now like next year and it felt so uh, long. it felt like ages ago like you know I started the work like 2015 with beachcombing and the ruins what I find really interesting and I think a lot of people are realizing about the valleys now and it's post-industrial landscape mm. I think it's interesting how much it was torn apart and made industrial but now it's like the nature's growing through and then you have these really interesting leftovers and splots a great example of the beach yeah. coming back to life but all these bits of bricks you're finding the sand itself is more slag than yeah it is it's really interesting about all of this kind of thing with south wales and i think it's interesting i don't want to sound like an old fogey but obviously i'm 42 and you said mm. that you were 22 and i think something that i'm kind of only just beginning to grasp now is like the difference for people of your generation the people of my generation is like probably the biggest jump in a kind of what was kind of prevalent and still happening when we were young is now already totally different to to what you experienced yeah and I, there's only a 20 year difference in that but so I can remember the minor strike I can remember pits still working I can remember industry I mean I, I grew up in North Yorkshire so and my grandfather was a mining engineer so I've kind of got that in the blood but when you look at South Wales now I've done quite a lot of talks about my work and I've spoken to quite young children about different things in different places I rem remember showing a little girl once who was like five or six piece of coal mm. and she had no idea what the coal actually even was <laughs> well yes and I was just like that is nuts to think that mm. like within two three generations the kind of bedrock of what the whole of South Wales is built on uh, in terms of industry like there are kids now that don't actually even know what it is and they don't know that it came out of the ground and as part of this project now I go up the valleys an awful mm. lot I live in the valleys but what I mean is like do a lot of exploration and I'm looking for industrial remains all the time when you see how much doesn't exist anymore it's pretty crazy to think that it was like almost like a scorched earth policy that a lot of this mining infrastructure is just totally wiped off the face of the earth. Yeah. And in a lot of places, you wouldn't know that those buildings were there at one point because mm. it's all been landscaped. Like Slag Heap Hills are a great example of that. If you look to the view from my point of view, I just think it's the green hills. Exactly, exactly. And But if, you know, you scratch just under the surface, there's a, a spoil tip, which is where I've been today, which was overlooked in a few different places Wattstown and that's a massive spoil tip with all the rain recently that's just started a massive big chunk of it's just fallen out and just slid down the hillside yeah. it's ginormous as well and then a bit further up when it was Storm Dennis earlier on this year there was a massive landslip by Tylerstown which was just a huge amount of rubble just coming down the hillside and it's amazing to think all that stuff is still there and it's, I'm not saying it's an awful thing because that it's being forgotten I'm quite I think there's quite a lot of ambiguity 
ambiguity about how I feel about it. there was employment, but it was also really dreadful employment. It was really unhealthy. People died really young. So it's a kind of double-edged sword, really. With and yeah. and that's what the project is all about. Really, is just finding those kind of remains of this stuff. And that's the the title is about you know what is it that humanity always seems to have this kind of weird romance with like ruins of things. Well, that's really interesting. And like you said, it's not about a nostalgia, but art allows you to have that ambiguity and not quite decide but sort of yes. it. it's asking a question rather than you know giving someone the answer isn't it and that that's the best way of looking at work in that way I mean the title came about with that thought of really like the picturesque in work and like the landowners in the 17th 18th 19th centuries who would have ruins built in their gardens and landscapes to make the landscapes look more interesting which is just a weird idea now that you think that <laughs> and obviously now some people go there they look at these landscapes and they've no idea that the folly is actually like mm. was never actually even a real building and I don't know whether there's a, a little bit of that now where remains of industry are almost becoming like tourist attractions you know they become this kind of heritage attraction and is that is that a good thing and again I'm quite ambiguous about that you know like in Swansea where the Havod is and they're doing up all the the copper works and stuff down at the Havod and I think they're doing a whiskey distillery and stuff a kind of heritage part thing but the hillside facing that is so polluted from the copper works being there that nothing will grow on the hillside if you look at that hillside it's just full of like dead stunted trees and I think that's something that also needs to be pointed to is that you know it wasn't just this rose-tinted nostalgia kind of thing it was like really awful work life expectancy was like 30 mm-hmm. yeah I know <laughs> it's horrendous you don't want to sort of yeah. pitch it it's impossible to make it picturesque it's not something that you can really kind of sugarcoat but mm. I think lots of places try <laughs> which yeah. I just find quite bizarre with the Illyria ruins the dreaming valleys is in conjunction with that is that where you're having that room to explore those other things so the dreaming valleys came about totally in lockdown and it was a kind of thought process that I'd been having for a while which I didn't want the allure of ruins to just be on its own as this kind of like the valleys is crap and it's just full of ruins and South Wales is this kind of wasteland now so I was thinking about ideas of I was trying to put a different slant onto the narrative the way the valleys is always characterised it's like burnt out cars and council houses and old mine workings and stuff And, and it's quite in terms of it in photography and filmmaking and stuff it's quite depressing and there obviously is that aspect to the valleys but there is that aspect to most places you know it's like that's just part of life that you can never kind of really portray the whole matrix of a place but people do with the valleys seem to be really drawn towards the kind of crapness of it and you know the remoteness and lack of employment and stuff so I was thinking like how do I kind of react to that and do something that's quite different and I've done some pictures with my friend Charlie there were just kind of pictures for nothing just to pass time really she lives in a place called Bather which is not far from here and I'd never been up the hill behind our house we've lived here five years and I'd literally never gone in that direction and you live in Treforest yeah so it, it basically going up the Greig and then beyond and going kind of in towards Plantricent and places like that so we did these pictures and that was like February last uh, this year oh my god mm. yeah it was just before lockdown and it was a really nice day sunny day and she kind of styled herself and looked really cool she's got this like yellow coat on and like got some Welsh blankets and stuff so we did this kind of they look like toast you know the brand toast yeah. <laughs> it had that kind of feel but I had never really seen this kind of landscape before which is like dry stone walls very agricultural quite mature trees but not like the forest trees of like the valleys which is all like pine trees it was more like native British trees it was just weird it was the kind of landscape that I didn't think existed in the valleys and it was more like the landscape I grown up in in Warwickshire which was grew up on a farm so that was very agricultural obviously that kind of had this planted this seed in my head and then May time I was just uh, we'd had lockdown and lovely weather but we couldn't really go anywhere so I was just kind of exploring like within five miles of the house yeah. And I remembered this place that had been suggested to me called Eglosilan, which is literally probably a mile from my house in the other direction, up the mountain, which may or may not be a mountain, but it's a 
pretty big hill. So I drove up there and it's like this really nice kind of secluded pub, which was closed, obviously. Then this little church with this amazing, like really ancient churchyard, really lovely trees around it. And I felt like I'd driven to West Wales or like Cornwall or something. It was really weird and felt very removed from the valleys, which is like the bottom of the valley. Often the top of the valley I've been finding, when I say the top of the valley, I mean the top of the hills rather than the north of the valleys, is still very agricultural and very old and kind of ancient. And you've got loads of dry stone walls and little farms and really kind of interesting windy roads and stuff. Mm -hmm. So this kind of mysterious place presented itself to me. The idea really suggested itself that could I do something that was about the valleys if the Industrial Revolution had never happened in the valleys? So it wasn't a case of, you know, coal mining and iron and all this stuff. It was just like the valleys would have been if all of that had happened somewhere else. And I think the valleys would still be a, a lot more like West Wales or like Cornwall, just quiet yeah. agricultural communities. That's interesting, um, like where you grew up in North Yorkshire. I mm, some of those well, I lived, lived in North Yorkshire till I was seven. And then I lived near Stratford-on-Avon until I was 20. So we lived for 13 years in the Midlands, which was oh. really very beautiful area to grow up in. And then that's the kind of landscape that I've never really seen in Wales, which is quite weird to think that there must be agriculture happening. But when you drive up and down the valleys or to Swansea or, you know, along to Newport, along the M4, mm. all of that stuff is kind of hidden away. And pine trees, it does feel quite American. Yeah, the pine trees are very odd. When you go towards like, you know, Resolvan and Neath Valleys and all around there, like, like you say, you do feel like you're driving to Canada or somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> It feels very strange and very kind of otherworldly, but not in a kind of British way. Whereas these places feel quintessentially British and very folklore and mysterious and that kind of vibe. So, that, so that's what I've been doing now. Has that been maybe, inspired by British horror films at all? Maybe folk horror, yeah, a little bit. In terms of more the mythologies and things like the Mary Floyd, the horse skull that they take round houses on New Year's, like <laughs> ancient traditions like that. I mean. That that is something that I'm trying to weave into it because we've got Coipenmine Common in Ponty, which is where I think one of the first Gorseths was as part of the Estethford in 1820 or something like that. And we've got another guy up here, William Price, Dr. William Price, who was quite famous as being a druid in this area. So I'm trying to not make it really avert, but trying to hint at this weird folkloric kind of thing. It's kind of stopped at the moment though because the weather and mm -hmm. the lack of daylight with the short days has just been mm. really frustrating I've, I had a really good day that was really foggy and I got some really good stuff that day but then otherwise like it's just I can't work in winter really it drives yeah. me mad oh my god <laughs> wow you have to get all your painting done now <laughs> well that, yeah I mean that's what I do uh, yeah in, win in winter really I just kind of have to lock myself in my studio and do the paintings then because yeah. that's how I earn money when I'm not doing photography. Before I move on to your painting, with the current projects that you're doing, they don't tend to feature a lot of people. I and mean, I don't know if that's a conscious choice for you, but I found it interesting when I read on chapter about your work. Because I think yeah. because you live in the valleys, you're not like a spectator or a distant gaze or imposing mm -hmm. outside view. And there is an empathy that is present with the way that you record the traces of life there and capture the yeah. communities in which you live and work. Yeah, I I mean, the allure of ruins has deliberately got no people in it. And I started introducing statues because there's quite a few statues of different kind of landowners. And I think that's enough for the human figure portraiture didn't really figure at all because I wasn't sure because originally I was working with sites that were you know have been derelict for 100 years there's obviously no one that I can photograph that work there or even you know their descendants really and that kind of was quite a logical decision whereas with the the valley the dreaming valleys it's been a case of where I've tried to cast characters so I've been asking friends to model effectively to kind of become quite ambiguous characters within the narrative so that is a process that I'm going through at the moment really trying to work out how I choose 
who's going to be in it and who isn't going to be in it. There are some people that I've met out and about that I photographed that are in the project. So I think it's a mix really where I'm kind of just trying to play with the idea of, like I said at the start, documentary photography, maybe something that looks like documentary photography, but isn't. Mm. I was talking about this to a friend who's a photographer and I was saying, you know, with photography, every little kind of decision that you make like that is kind of picked apart in terms of documentary photography has all got to be real. Of course, none of it's real anyway, because it's all about what you choose as the photographer to photograph. Mm -hmm. And it's all about making a nice picture at the end of the day. And I was saying like, you know, if it was filmmaking and you did, you made a narrative film about characters and you, you wrote the characters and you wrote the script, no one would question that for a second. They'd be like, this is what you do with film. But with photography, I think people, it freaks people out that they think somehow it's fake or kind of, it's not a realistic kind of reflection, but it never can be because you are always the author of the work and it's only ever what you choose to include. And yeah. that's the thing, other, you can't design a project by committee and it's like, you know, you don't want your work to start to look like the United Colours of Benetton ads to have like everyone in. We're going to have, you know, people from Asia in there. We're going to have loads of black people in it. We're going to have everyone from all over the world because that would just look strange but the other you know going towards the other direction I don't want it to just look like loads of white people living in this pretty kind of you know um Albion-esque imaginary place I don't want people to think oh John Pountney's make, made a project about this imaginary place. There's only white people living there. It's quite a difficult thing to choose what you put into it. Whereas if you're making a film, literally no one would think twice about it. That's interesting, because it's a perspective. And... Yeah, 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 yeah. And obviously the Valleys is multicultural. And that's something you've got to think about. It's just how you depict it without making it look too, like I said, like you don't want it to just look like you're trying to please everyone because then you'll please no one. It's been quite a difficult kind of process, actually. With the work in chapter, the waiting for the light work, there was no people in that, mainly down to the curation, which was by Kath and Hannah in chapter. I think I remember giving them pictures of people that were part of the work but the people were never chosen, if I remember rightly. It's so that was when you don't realise it's the curation behind as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, for that, I gave them about fifty pictures, probably, and I think there was thirteen in the end that made it to the wall. And I think there was one that did have some people in, but they were really far off in the distance. And I think their thing they took from it was this thing that other people picked up on, and I had not picked up on it at all, which was this kind of trace element of people where you know it's all about wear and tear and the, the kind of marks that people leave and I'd never thought of that so it's always interesting when you show work to people the, the work the project for me had been all about light and waiting for a specific kind of light and what other people picked up was it's like oh all this is about like people that aren't there really. It's interesting because you've talked about purposefully trying to show outside of the conventional art spaces but then when you do it's interesting for you maybe to see what discourse gets written around it. Yeah, I mean, I don't show a lot in uh, conventional spaces. Firstly, because I'm never asked. <laughs> and secondly... Um, <laughs> it's just a choice. Yeah. Secondly, I've never, probably subconsciously, never pursued it. I've always been quite rebellious. And, uh, and the kind of work that I like and the kind of ideas that I like and the kind of shows that I like aren't just going and traipsing around like a white cube space I like something that's a bit more of an experience you know whether it's just pasting posters on a wall like the thing that I've got up at the moment which I've done with Commonwealth in St Melons which is the portraits of the community there I think from the beginning because of Covid and you know the difficulties we were having with working that was always going to have to be outside and shown outside and it's a series of portraits now which is next to the, the big Tesco's which is right in the middle of the St Melons estate mm. and and I would always much rather do something like that, that the community can see themselves in the pictures and have a kind of buzz from that than have my work in a place where people kind of feel scared to go and they feel it's not for them. Uh, and I do remember when I did the first Cardiff before Cardiff thing that I did in the Wells Millennium Centre, the opening night for that, and we just didn't know who was going to come. And it was like, it's this massive opera house where, you know, the local people, docks people and splot now 
Adams down people don't think it's for them. They just think it's for middle class people in din, you know, dinner jackets and stuff. We had like 800 people turn up yeah. and they were all from the community. And it was like, it was amazing because they were seeing themselves on the wall. Yeah, then, it's almost that direct engagement before the show yeah. helps a lot. Yeah. And I'm working with the Joseph Herman Foundation and I love... Ah, right, uh, okay. They're literally in the mine as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've wanted to get up there for absolutely ages and I've never got there. Oh, um, yeah. where, where is it? Pontadawa? Or is it Pentagon? Ah, Stragunlai. That's an area that I really need to get to next. But Joseph mm. Herman stuff I, I love because, it, and, and again, he was part of that community, worked and lived there, like, I don't know if it was all of his life, but... 11 he, years. He was embedded with that community, wasn't he? Exactly. And that's um, that, you know, my friend Lee always says to me, he's from Merthyr, and he's like, you know, I don't know how you got on photographing the valleys and you haven't had your head kicked in. And it's uh, he's like, people must just really like you. <laughs> and connect with you and I think that's the kind of thing you've got to bear in mind is with someone like Joseph Herman or with you know someone like me you're not patronizing people and you're not trying to present people in a false way you're actually in the community and you can Mm. actually talk and understand them you know that's like with the St Melon stuff my friend Rihanna who, who runs Commonwealth who I did the project with she's from St Melon's herself so they're based in Lanramney now in Lanramney Hall they've got a new office there so we did all this work about East Cardiff and it went amazing because it was just like meeting real people and yeah. dealing with real people and you know, I would always rather deal with people like that in environments like that than deal with organisations and establishments that are just so difficult to deal with and mm. Just, I think that's one of the problems with Wales is that the organisations and establishments are so slow moving and their exhibition programmes are so locked in so far in advance that they never seem to react to what's happening around them. Glyn Vivian, particularly in Swansea, is one of my favourite galleries. I'd love to show work in the Glyn Vivian, mm-hmm. but they're probably like, their programme is probably done three years in advance. So you just never contact them thinking, what's the point really? Which yeah. is quite difficult and quite uh, frustrating. No, I think it's a really interesting point about not reacting fast enough because the interest is there. My dad lives in Glen Corrig, which is a valley as well. Yeah, I know, yeah. It's really nice. And people there, they're always curious and like someone's renovating the chapel, you know, and they are engaged with it. And I think it's just a cultural space has reached out. Mm. Going back to Herman, that legacy, it's like these miners wanted to educate themselves and that's why they funded to get miners' halls. Absolutely. You know, people aren't stupid. They're not idiots and they are interested in things. And that's like outreach. I think outreach is a weird thing at the moment where that people are kind of told what their outreach is going to be rather than mm. the other way around, which is like, oh, the people can ask what they want from the establishments and organisations. And I think that's the difference difficult part of it. How did you come to Wales? Well, I went to college in Royal Leamington Spa, to give it its full posh name, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> which was an amazing college, an amazing experience, and I was kind of there. They basically couldn't get rid of me, so I did some GCSEs there. I did my A-levels there as a pre-foundation course, and then I did my foundation course. And it was just a really wonderful place. Two campuses, so one that was kind of modern 60s, and then there was a Victorian art school, purpose-built art school called York Road which is flats now which was just the most amazing art school you can imagine really and I feel sorry for students now that they don't get to go to art schools like that because they're all being turned into flats and then I came to university in Cardiff in Howard Gardens which is also flats now (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I went to UIC which is now Cardiff Met is it and I did a course called art and aesthetics which is absolutely useless Ah. (laughs) But I made lifelong friends there. That was the main thing. And also that was really where, because our course was so bad, I taught myself photography in the darkroom. That's pretty much what I did for three years. And then I did a little bit of film and video and stuff as well on the side. So that was 1996. So I moved to Cardiff in 1996. I've been here ever since. It's interesting with the university experience and it was mainly just the fact of having that freedom with a darkroom. Yeah, I think I was lucky in that I 
was from a course that everyone in that art school ignored. Um, <laughs> so none of the technicians or anyone wanted to help you. So you could basically do what you wanted as long as you didn't make a mess. Okay. So I was just in the darkroom day after day after day, really. There was a brilliant machine in there which you could feed in photographic paper and it came out like 80 seconds later, fully processed. So there's none of this messing about with trays and all that hideous wet chemistry, which I've never really been a massive fan of. So you could whack out a lot of prints and, and do a lot of work. And I just experimented with stuff in yeah. there for three years. It's important with photography to get that quick access in a way to know what yeah. settings work for you, what you need to change. Yeah, there's no messing about. You go, you shoot some film, you go in, you process the film. And, you know, in a couple of hours, you've got prints of what you've done. It's not much slower than digital, really. If you've got those facilities on tap, which I don't think colleges really do have anymore for wet chemistry. But obviously, I'm talking about pre-digital cameras oh god I'm so old um, film's got more expensive as well oh film is hideously expensive oh. now yeah mm-hmm. it's shambolic really up to this year I probably still shot more film than digital and then this year it's totally turned on its head and I thought with lockdown and everything that's happening and these two projects that I've been doing which is so time consuming and, and long form projects I'm going to have to totally embrace digital because mm-hmm. film just firstly I won't be able to afford it mm. uh, secondly I won't be able to afford bought it it's it just comes down to money really yeah. uh with this horrible you know people are like oh laptops are expensive cameras are expensive but if you're shooting a lot of film really quickly like it becomes very soul destroying yeah it's really sad actually I find um, it sad because I like to do more photography even and yeah. I used to, be able to buy some film in batch but now it just becomes too much money and I, again I'm almost like wanting to resist relying on my phone and I love that thing of when you're really composing it and thinking through. oh yeah 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 it's I like to shoot on transparency film and that is horrifically expensive now and even the out of date stuff that people put on eBay now is like that's some of it's more expensive than proper film that's in date <laughs> working film uh, what, what is transparency film is well, that like slide film slide so film. it's like it comes out as a positive and if you look at it on 120 or even better like large format mm. it just looks magical because it's like stained glass window mm. of reality and it looks so beautiful negative film doesn't really look you know very exciting color negative film looks horrible because it's that horrible brownie colour whereas you get transparencies on a light box and you're just like whoa they look so nice and that's a real shame that I think I mean a lot of stuff we're going backwards with that creativity is almost going backwards brilliant stuff like that that is becoming so expensive I think is a real problem that younger kids you know aren't exposed to this stuff that's not not a deliberate pun they're not exposed to this stuff they don't know it even exists you know Polaroid film and stuff and I think of the stuff that we just chucked away because it was out of date and now it would be worth a bloody fortune <laughs> could be funding your project <laughs> I, I know yeah <laughs> <laughs> Talking about medium, I read that you yeah. were painting up again in 2018, which I find amazing. Yeah, a painting has been a bit of a weird thing, actually. Up to 1996, I would say that I did more painting than photography. And then, as I've explained, I came to Howard Gardens in Cardiff and there was no paint. So oh. I'd gone to a college where you had all your materials. You had an easel, you had a drawing board, you had life models. You, it was just a brilliant college. Came to Howard Gardens, no paint, no drawing boards. The first three months were there, oh yeah was some A1 paper and some graphic powder because there'd been a fire the previous year in where our course had been based and all the materials had gone and they'd never replaced them. So it was like, can't do painting, can't really afford to do painting. So I'm just going to go in the dark room. Yeah. And that's really then when, when I got really good at photography and, I, you know, I was getting the results that I wanted really easily. That's when you just think, oh God, like I can do a print in minutes and a painting, you know, takes X amount of time. How do you find that now that contrast of paintings very labor intensive and then I find it a really different process now I kind of recaptured what I loved about painting when I was growing up so on the farm that I grew up on we had I had a little studio where I could kind of shut myself away and work on stuff and that you know with painting it's the process it's the act of doing the painting that is what you enjoy so by a real lucky chance basically for years I tried to restart painting I was painting on canvas 
canvas, oil on canvas. Was, they were just horrible results, just throwing them away. And then my friend Catherine Floyd, who is a painter, suggested to me using oil on paper, which I'd never even thought of, even though it was something that I was kind of aware of, like Constable who used to sketch oil on paper. So I tried, I'd got a bit of like thick watercolour paper and tried doing something and it came out brilliant straight mm. away. And I was yeah. like, this is a bit of a turn up for the mm. books. That's amazing. And it was a painting. Yeah, it, it was a really amazing turnaround. And uh, I did a few things. And then what really sold it to me was, funny enough, it was in Swansea, the lane behind Stake by Night. <laughs> I took a photo of this big shadow. It's just off the Kingsway. I don't even know if Snake by Night is still there anymore. So I got this kind of diagonal shadow and I was like, oh, I'm going to give painting that a go. And it came out exactly how I wanted it to come out. And I think that's the thing with painting. If it doesn't, with photography, you can get it bang on and it's fine. Mm. With painting, it's like, often there's a balance of, I know that looks okay, but I'm not happy with it. Or I'm perfectly happy with it. And I think I got within a few paintings, or on paper I was really happy with what I was getting and then I was just doing paint 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 this is 20, summer 2018 so the first time in 22 years really that I'd really tried to give it a good go and then I just was really interested in looking at the kind of ways that my ph photography and, and painting were overlapping and colour theory learning about colours learning about all the different blues and reds and different whites and stuff that I'd never been taught before um, um, and I never really taken the opportunity to learn before, really, because when I stopped painting, I was only like 18 because yeah. that's when I moved to Cardiff. So it was a case of learning it all from scratch, really, and kind of looking at, you know, mixing different greens and buying different yellows, different blues and becoming quite not obsessive, but quite pragmatic about how I was going to arrange all these colours and then, you know, look at what I was because I'm working from my own photographs. Yeah. So it's a case, of, you know, learning about that kind of colour theory. And that's what, you know, feeds back into the kind of idea of sense of place that it's like you want to try and get that sense of place and light within I really hate and I don't hate that's the wrong word but when I'm painting I have to have get something specific I don't just like that green will do that red will do that orange will do painting for me is of a specific place and I'm trying to get that feeling rather than some of the Fovis and people like that their colors are kind of just wacky and bright and garish and I don't think you get that sense of place I'm much more even though I love Matisse I'm much more about like with my photography really it's much more like a kind of Paul Nash kind of feel of specifics of even just like not a field just even like a corner of a field or like one stone is more important to me than like an impression I know that you like John Piper as well and Graham Sutherland mm. and I love those British modernists and yeah, just, yeah 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 they really yeah. convey like a feel and I, th I really like British modernism because I find yeah. it funny how it does feel British and like but why and how it's a weird, it's a truly kind of unique art form to Britain. And it's like, I would class Constable as being within it, but I wouldn't necessarily class Turner because I think Turner was a bit too interested in trying to look painterly. And his pictures were more about the impact of the paint rather than Constable is, this is a painting of this specific place. Uh, and even though he changed the actual structure of the place, he actually got a sense of place. Whereas I think Turner is a bit like, look, I'm, I'm splashing all this paint That's around. Like the Sutherland, John Piper, Paul Nash, Eric Revillius, all those. I mean, they're the guys for me to mm -hmm. go to. And a lot of contemporary art kind of hosts them. It leaves me a bit cold, really. You know, all the stuff that was kind of current when I was in university and stuff, all the YBAs and all that stuff. Look back now and it all looks a bit kind of, uh, a bit <laughs> meh. It's not like it's dated, but it's of that time. It's really of its time. And I think that's something that's quite interesting that, you know, you can look at, you can look at a Revilius or a Piper particularly, or, or Paul Nash, and they're of their time, but they're also timeless. Mm. I think that's the, I mean, that's what I try really hard to get in, particularly into my photography. I've always tried to miss out modern cars or I'll try and purposefully photograph old cars that just happen to be in a street. Remember having a massive argument with a guy who was just doing my head in, who worked for the Echo, and he was insistent that one of my photos was one of Keith's photos, which were taken in the 70s because of the atmosphere of it. 
and in the background there's a totally modern car mm. and he goes, that's not your picture and I was like yeah that, that's my picture I took it in Tramorfa that's something I really like to work with well I always feel myself a bit out of time as it were that I don't feel kind of fully meshed with like modern life and I think that's you know both these current bodies of work have a lot to do with that because all, all work is autobiographical and I think you know the Dreaming Valleys is more to do with trying to make work that looks like my memories of growing up in the 90s rather than it looking specifically like 2020 I would hate someone to say that that work was about Covid or lockdown or you know anything like that because that would really specifically date it I, I do want it to look timeless mm. and that's what I'm really hoping once it's meshed together and I've got a few more people in it that it will start to look and I think it's like you make it look timeless but you don't shy away from what's going on now because you no. did a zine called COVID-19 yeah well that was a specific thing that was that was just something that right at the start of lockdown I found that but again I did kind of find that weirdly timeless it was like a limbo yeah. and that's what I've yeah. mentioned in, in the writing mm. is that walking around the street for like all of March and April in Traforest hardly saw soul I was walking went out walking every day because the weather was lovely and I was doing loads of pictures I was thinking oh I, w- I will put something together out of these but you had this kind of feel that is it just going to stay like this forever yeah, it was, <laughs> was like- kind of like a dream I really quite enjoyed the first lockdown because it was just nice weather and I was out taking pictures and it hadn't at that point got to the point where it was like the news was really depressing and we couldn't go anywhere and it was just like something new and quite fresh whereas you know now it's like oh my god like will this ever end like <laughs> I just want to just want to go and see my friends or just go into like I absolutely hate Cardiff city centre and I'm like I'm quite nostalgic about just going to Waterstones or something to buy a book yeah so yeah and then I turned that into a zine which went really well actually and I was really really pleased with the take up on it I don't know whether I will do more with that or maybe just maybe not actually I might just move on to something else i got a few ideas for other other things already that are kind of popping up into my brain i think in the future it's going to be a weird time specifically culturally of art exhibitions like looking back at covid I think we're almost not ready for it yet <laughs> with something. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's anything that really even does need to be documented that well in that way by artists. I think artists these days feel they need to be relevant and talk about stuff like that. But if you look back at the history of art, not much great art comes out of stuff that's kind of pertinent. It's difficult. You've got Monet doing like the, the water lilies while the second uh, while the first world war is happening then you've got paul nash doing his like trench art as well and it's like which is the better art it's hard to decide and i don't want to know about a load of crap art coming out of covid that is just like i can imagine it now like going into a room full of masks or something or like really obvious tropes about like a a room where you have to hold your breath for a minute or something (laughs) (laughs) just the lowest common denominator kind of conceptual art where it's like oh i've made a bed a hospital bed out of masks or something a art student is probably literally doing it this minute so do you like more traditional sense of art hmm i don't know what traditional is really i just like stuff that feels like it's got an authority and a kind of presence and i don't like things that are kind of glib or uh, like a word that i really hate when people talk about art is playful i hate art that is playful or kind of just silly because it's like just if you want to do stuff like that become a comedian I don't find it interesting or kind of engrossing I'm sure people love it but it's like stuff that's kind of playful like that I, you know crossovers of people that do performance and like they dress up and stuff me and my friends used to do that in college and and just make film it and think we were like being like Reeves and Mortimer I'm not saying that art like that shouldn't be made but I'm just saying that it's not it's not for you no 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 I'd much rather go and see a Velasquez or Caravaggio or something like that and be like wow this person knew what they were doing like uh, or I went to see in was it called in the flesh or under the skin or something it was like British realist painting in the Tate a couple of years ago and there was a big massive Leon Kossoff one of the swimming pool and there was a few fraud and there was the one that Lucian Freud did of like a plant yeah. it's all just leaves it took him three years to paint really? like that's something that I admire and kind of think there's something happening there rather than something that's just a bit slapdash and I get art about slapdash rubbish which is like you know Andy Warhol like pop art it's about ephem- the ephemera of life but I don't want the actual art itself to just be like a biscuit on a table or maybe that is 
my next project who knows you were in an exhibition at Cardiff made called contemporary landscapes in the digital age so for you what does painting specifically allow you to portray about a sense of place that perhaps photography doesn't I think the paintings that I had in that show were done from memory so that was what that was about and I've done more since then do you enjoy working from memory no <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't I thought that'd be quite difficult I found it intensely difficult and mm. just really impossible to, to put across what I was trying to put across but then one of them actually did start to work really well and that was a kind of group of trees at the end of the lane where my farm was where I used to have a den and used to walk up to there in summer and that actually worked quite well but then the other one I did of a lane looking down a lane I just thought was terrible but people really liked it and that's what I'm saying that's one of the ones where you know it's all right but you're not happy with it and you know people are going to look at that and go oh that's a nice painting but you and yourself think oh god I don't know about that that's the duality with painting like sometimes you can do a perfectly fine painting but I do have this horrible kind of creeping feeling sometimes that my paintings just look like the kind of things that are in like a blue dot gallery and it's like a painting of a cow with like eating clover. Do you know the kind of paintings that I mean? Yours don't do that. So I like the subjects that you paint. I yeah. like their sense of place. It's almost like with your photography, you couldn't pigeonhole it and say it's documentary photography. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's just more like ambiguous. But even then, there's a better word for it. But I think it's just got more feeling. And just... Yeah, I'm always horrified to think that my paintings look a bit like Jack Vetriano paintings. <laughs> I'm sure he's a lovely guy, but I don't like his paintings of people dancing on a seashore with a butler. And the... people always mention Edward Hopper with my photography and my painting. And I I always I love Edward Hopper's work but I, I love uh, Hopper, I think maybe because you work with lines and that mm. quite diagonal but I think otherwise it reminded me more of the British modernness which is good Happy that's your, your <laughs> <laughs> um, be the strap line for everything yeah. <laughs> talking about your influences I've noticed that you do some films of Super 8 and I do yeah is that with Derek Jarman yeah my influences are the same and they've always been the same forever and I've never really changed them and it's it's always been Paul Nash, Derek Jarman and a lot of music that I listen to so Suede who worked with Derek Jarman the Smiths who worked with Derek Jarman so there's kind of big cultural overlap of the stuff that I'm into and I think I just really want to emulate the people that I like really which yeah. is I can't say that I'm massively imaginative outside of their kind of inspiration because but then again they they're not the most obvious list of influences I don't suppose I do really like Jarman I saw because beachcombing you've got poetry read over that reminded me a lot of the way he does his video yeah I was a guy called Rob who who worked in the steelworks in East Moors in the 1970s and that poem he had written that poem in the 1970s about that experience and that worked really well yeah I was really pleased with that film actually and I don't know why I haven't done more with it <laughs> it's difficult with video because it's kind of people don't really understand video they like they understand painting and they understand a, a good photograph but with social media you put a video on and you get like three likes and 10 watches and it's, it's like funny. it's almost like people prefer the instant sort of and I was even surprised because I came across it on your YouTube channel and that's quite accessible and I guess it's confusing for you mm. as the artist like what do you do the video how do you sell it or use it for work mm. but I didn't expect that but I put it on full screen and then it allows you to get fully sort of immersed in it so yeah it's difficult yeah. on Instagram I, I, that's the difficulty as well you can't see I mean that's the difficulty with a lot of my stuff and, and that's I've really gone off Instagram because you're posting stuff that isn't designed to be postage stamp sized and it's really difficult to get character into photos to get likes to get interest and then you think why am I doing this for Instagram like I'm doing this because I'm trying to do a book or I'm trying to do an exhibition I'm not just trying to get more followers and I, I've really kind of gone off Instagram recently and, and I've really enjoyed for the past couple of years Twitter much more for like the interaction and research element and just talking to people about it really works much better for the social history stuff and I find Instagram really 
really is just like posting pictures in a vacuum and mm-hmm. waiting for likes. There's no interaction. No one talks to you. It's just a bit of bit of gone a bit weird for me. Instagram. That's um, I think I found you through Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I other mean, people and you do make connections, but I think just that extra level that you enjoy with the yeah. Actually, having said that, I would say through my painting profile, I have a lot more interaction, a lot more friendly comments, and kind of support. The photography stuff, I do find is a bit like just posting in a void right i think there's a, a quite a big thing with photography and photographers that it's likes for likes mm-hmm. and it's like comments for comments and it's like you know people will be like great capture mate and then it's mm-hmm. like they might comment on your picture if you comment on theirs and stuff and i really can't be bothered with that if i like a photo i will like it yeah. and otherwise i just won't I, I only like almost gets lost because it's a photograph, even though it's by an artist. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. I think so, yeah. You make a point of collaborating with audiences through social media. And did yeah. that begin with your Cardiff Before Cardiff project? Because there you had a Tumblr. Yeah, there. I think straight away that became obvious that that was going to have legs in that way. I put the images on Tumblr first, which obviously is something which has died a bit of a death now, a bit like MySpace. <laughs> I think I originally created a Facebook profile for Cardiff before Cardiff rather than a page because I don't think pages were a thing then and the Tumblr was kind of like just going along and then the Facebook just went nuts even now it's got like I don't hardly use it at all but it's got like loads of friends and the comments on the pictures just went on and on and on and on and it was all this thing about oh I remember Auntie Flo in the laundrette and I remember this street and I remember these cars and it was straight away it was really obvious that it was that that was going to work through social media and I think that doing a project like that identifying the people pre-Facebook would have been impossible because you would have had to literally go around every street trying to show people the pictures definitely Uh, social history yeah and I think that since then every project I've done has been a lot more about you never want to give the audience control because you have to remember that you're the artist and you've done the training and and you're the one with the vision of what you're doing but it is great to have the audience as you know a component within the project that is kind of suggesting ideas and stuff can be brilliant or suggesting on Twitter with the allure of ruins now so many people have suggested places to go a few people had showed me this brilliant app that the Scottish National Library has got where you can overlay older ordnance survey maps over a modern map so you can basically check what was at a site a hundred years ago yeah, so, so I could I so saw where I've been today to Stanley Town I was looking around and because I got kind of knowledgeable about it now I could see where potentially there was a colliery or factory so I came home looked on my laptop and I was right there was a building there in like 1910s or something so it's good you know it's good for people to suggest stuff like that Mm. that works really well that's really nice and with the commonwealth project you've just done Mm -hmm. what was the process of that us here now yeah us here now it was Rhiannon who is a really good friend of mine she runs commonwealth and they've got a new office in Lanrumney hall and basically they were meant to be doing three plays there over three years but obviously this year they haven't been able to do anything so she rang me up and said do you want to do a community-based photography project and I said yes straight away I worked in Land Rumney in 2015 as well and did a project in 2015 so I already knew the area quite well it just went from there basically but because Rhi is from the area and her sister Bev still lives there we were embedded within the community you know so within five minutes we could just start and get on with it and, and just talk to the people that we needed to talk to and get it done and it was really good fun actually I thought it was going to be a bit of a nightmare with Covid and it was a really nice summer and it makes the summer look really good because I was like right we've got to be really strict we're not going to do any of these on days when it's bad weather Mm because we just need it to look absolutely like idyllic and it really does actually (laughs) you'll be waiting for summer to come back around for that I, I am absolutely like uh, once it's the end of October, I'm just like, I go into shutdown because I hate winter. I hate short days. I hate the bad weather. Lockdown. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, lockdown is even worse. With 2020 soon to go by, your work was also in collaboration with the Blue Shop Cottage shown in Soho House. Which is yeah. How did that um, come out? Well, that was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> So Oki, who runs Blue Shop Cottage, followed me on Instagram and she liked my work a lot and was saying we should try and do stuff this year. But obviously it didn't happen in terms of doing an exhibition in London or whatever because of lockdown. But then um, she did this works on paper ID 
idea, mm. which was to kind of sell direct to people through Blue Shop Cottage. And it was stuff that was easy, deliverable. So I put three or four paintings into that. And I think I sold three out of four. And I think one of them, I might be misremembering this now. Mm. One of those was bought by Kate Bryan, who does Portrait Painter of the Year on yeah. Sky. Yeah. And that went to Soho House in Soho. Brilliant. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> Well, the weird thing it's yeah so it's really weird so my friend Jamie used to have a bar there and it was in the same building as Soho House so that she was on the ground floor called Tea Bar and then so is it Shoreditch House it's Shoreditch House Shoreditch House it's Soho House in Shoreditch House isn't it they have loads of houses yeah so my one one of my paintings is Soho House in Shoreditch House where my friend used to have a bar but also then they bought another one so Mm. I sold two to Soho House I don't know where the other one even is so that could be anywhere in the world at the moment that was amazing I was really chuffed about that because it was just yeah a really nice surprise because yeah. you don't expect a message saying oh we've just sold one of your paintings to Soho House I it's, going, it's in the DJ booth in Shoreditch House now so I think that's really I said, oh I'm, I'm really chuffed because I said to Jamie about it and she was like well that's where my bar was and I was like what did I used to go to? And she said, yeah, like Soho House is on the top floor with like the big infinity pool. And I was like, oh my God. So that's um, really funny. Yeah. We went there about 10 years ago because we went to see Suede in the O2 Arena. Uh, and yeah. then we went there afterwards. It's funny about the Soho House and Blue Shop Cottage collaboration. Because when I was at the Corsos in January, yeah. Kate Bryan did a talk on about women uh, artists. Really interesting about yeah. how the market, you know, needs to walk the walk, not to talk the talk. Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. Oki was there in the audience and that's yeah. when she, they met, like, because Oki had... Oh, right. I see. And I think that's so great how those meetings happen and then seeing it trickle down to... Yeah, the- that is one thing that I think Instagram in particular works really well for painters and you've got that brilliant way of connecting which you didn't have even 10 years ago. Mm. It's interesting because you've been working, like you said, you have worked for different eras through the 90s, 2000s, When I look back across it, it is pretty nuts, all the different things I've watched come into being. Like, I did film and video GCSE, which was like Super 8 and Umatic video, which are both totally defunct technologies now. (laughs) And Super Uh, 8, cheap and accessible, now that's really expensive. Oh my God, it was so easy. Yeah, it's so easy to come by. The job that I first did leaving university was working in photography studio in Cardiff just done three years teaching myself film and went to work for a a photographer and he literally the week before had just chucked all of his film camera equipment out and just gone digital so I knew nothing about digital at all went to the interview and I was like here are my prints and he was like oh yeah we've just bought this eight megapixel digital back which is like 2001 which is like 40,000 quid or something I think and I was just like oh my god I don't know anything about this I had to relearn it all again you know (laughs) and then social media is again is another thing that you just you can't really remember what it was like before because I I had to ring a photographer and say do you want to see my portfolio and I had to go and visit him with prints and talk to a human being you've never met before and if he looked at them and thought that it was shit I mean you'd have been like uh whereas now you you know you send an email and someone looks at them and if they like them they get back to you and if they don't like them you don't hear from them Whereas you've got that awful social interaction of like showing someone your work that they might think is rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and but that's away the with, yeah, walking away with your tail between your legs. <laughs> that's the same with social media, I suppose, now as well with selling stuff, selling paintings and stuff. It's like people can come to you and, and you don't need a web. I, you know, I haven't got a painting website because mm. I've sold stuff so quickly that I think it would just be pointless putting the paintings on there because I did a painting recently of a cottage by Monk Nash and within literally within 20 minutes a lady from Canada had seen it on Twitter followed me on Instagram and bought it <laughs> that's amazing like, this is nuts yeah it is it's nuts I mean it's been and, up and it's off to Canada yeah for the final question how long did it take you to find your identity or voice as an artist I think I've probably done my best work in the past five years. So I'd say from 2015 onwards. I don't know if I'd characterise Cardiff before Cardiff as part of that. It's certainly not within that time frame, but I wouldn't say if that was my best work or not. It's difficult because you're talking about a popularity.
popularity contest to some extent, whereby you're trying to find something that is intensely personal to you that also translates to other people and they want to spend money on. That takes a lot of guts and kind of stupidity to even give that a go, I think. And that's the thing that if you're, and this goes down a kind of difficult avenue of art that is funded and art that is not funded. When I say funded, I mean, you know, funded by a public body. I think that's why you need some art which is funded by taxpayers, effectively, because there is some art which isn't ever going to be commercial. But also, you shouldn't necessarily be afraid of making commercial work, because I don't think that makes you a capitalist. That just makes you someone that wants to make a living. Yeah, I think that a lot of artists can look down on people that sell work and just be like oh you're selling work now and it's a bit like well yeah that's how I live whereas there's a lot of artists who just live live through funding I don't want to say handouts because I think that's like that's a nasty phrase and it's a bit like tabloid journalism but there's a lot of work that gets made that wouldn't get made if you had to sell it Mm. I think what I'm trying to say is like you have to have the bravery to find your own voice but also be skilled and good enough really to deliver something that people do want to show and buy and that can take quite a long time and I think that you this tweet today was about you know so much funding I don't want to say this anti-young people I know you're younger than me but so much funding these days is directed towards people who are 18 to 25 or whatever and it's like there are artists all over the place working of all different ages and it's like why aren't they supported as well if you look at the history of art like the massive majority of artists if you take out gender and, and race if we're talking western art white men obviously found it much easier to make art but if you look at those artists most of them didn't make really great work until they were in their 40s or 50s no one was making really brilliant work when they were 18 would be insane to think that and it would also be like what just be weird to think that you'd peaked at 18 if you lived until you're 80 that's like you know Lucian Freud was painting until was he 88 or something like that and some of his biggest most ambitious work was done in the 90s when he was already in his 70s he was 70 in 1992 So if you think of all the stuff he did of Lee Bowery and all that stuff. So I think finding your voice firstly is can be really intensely personal but also it's to do with if you're lucky people want to buy what you're creating Mm -hmm. and kind of like what you're creating and I think that's difficult because it's a mistake to think that your work is shit if people aren't buying it yeah but also you know that is what funding exists for but also there is shit work that is funded I think it's really important to have a balance and like you have a drive and a commitment to take those risks and to be and try and fund it as well but I think it's nice like you said there are some projects that just aren't going to sell and it's really nice to be able to do maybe a bigger scale that the public can engage with and it's funded yeah you've got to have funding in that way but I think kind of navel gazing boring work is being funded to to not mention names I, I know of someone who was given a creative way award to do a blog and that blog never appeared and it's like it's thousands of pounds and it's like yeah when you look at the amount of stuff that I've put and I'm not you know bigging myself up but if you look at the amount of stuff that I've put online that's all been self-funded pushed through from my own kind of work ethic and then you look at other people who've had five grand or ten grand or 14k I think one was and it's like you've not actually even produced anything yeah (laughs) it's like shocking right on that bombshell on that bombshell (laughs) indeed so thank you so much John no problem I enjoyed it 